Welcome to the iHealth Podcast, a podcast for you to relate to like-minded individuals discussing hot topics all related to rehab, fitness, and business. Brought to you by Iron Health from Westchester, New York. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I have a very, very special guest. This was a fun podcast to record. We have Dr. Nicole Belkin. She is an orthopedic surgeon and a sports medicine specialist, and she specializes in non-operative and operative treatment of injuries and conditions affecting the knee, shoulder, and hip. So we deep dive in this episode really onto the shoulder. Dr. Belkin is actually an avid CrossFitter as well, so we go ahead and talk about CrossFit and certain ways to prevent injuries in CrossFit and to make sure that you're keeping mobile, staying healthy, and pushing forward. She is a boat full of knowledge. We dive right into everything. It's a really, really cool episode. I hope you enjoy. You find out about her life, her transition, how she became an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, She's got a pretty interesting background too. She was a rugby player. Very cool episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. And again, our goal is to deliver as much knowledge as possible. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it. The more people that view this, the more knowledge that's shared, the better. Thanks for listening. Got into become, becoming an orthopedic surgeon. Like, What was that journey like? Why did you do it? And kind of that whole process. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty timely too, because we just finished interviewing our applicants for orthopedic residency at Columbia. And um, when you're in medical school or high school trying to decide what you want to do, sometimes it's shaped by a personal experience you have in healthcare um, or a family member. And typically experiences people have with orthopedic surgeons is pretty good. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have some sort of injury or problem uh, and then many times that orthopedic surgeon can fix the problem or at least make it much, much better and give a person back um, an activity level or get a pain to go away or something like that. So a lot of times in our applications, the personal um, story, you know, the statement will say something like, you know, I tore my ACL in high school and, you know, my orthopedic surgeon was so awesome. It made me want to be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. So it's like a really common story. So if you combine having been an athlete my whole life and therefore having interactions with kind of sports medicine people from athletic trainers and physical therapists and strength and conditioning coaches, and then obviously the doctors that take care of injuries of those people, having had a couple of ACL tears in my lifetime. Um, a couple? <laughs> a couple, yeah. <laughs> I'm a vet. I can really identify with the patients pretty well. Yeah. We, we, show, we show each other our scars. Um, <laughs> that's like a true bond of, uh, yeah. Documentation right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, I just personally liking to be hands-on and, and, and like fix things, construct things. It was either like be an orthopedic surgeon or be a, an engineer mm-hmm. probably. Um, so it was a pretty natural fit. But what's really interesting is um, no one in my family is medical at all. Um, So I kind of just determined that that was what I thought I wanted to do from experience and assumptions, I suppose. So I had no idea 
how long it actually took to become an orthopedic surgeon. Oh, really? When I, I might want to do that in high school. I had no idea. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and it was also kind of funny because like, I think I was trying to like be open-minded. Um, so I never really sat down with like a pen and paper and the internet and wrote down like what the actual steps to doing that were. I was just kind of like, all right, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to make sure I get all the requirements to go to med school. So if that works out, I can get into med school. Um, but be like open-minded to other stuff then. And then when I got into medical school, I was like, all right, um, there's all that stuff you have to do there, regardless of what kind of doctor you're going to be. So obviously I have to do all that, but I'm going to make sure that I get to see like orthopedics and uh, rehab medicine and emergency medicine and all the other things that were kind of related. So just in case I wasn't right in what I thought I wanted to do, I could see like other similar stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it came time to like applying for residency. And I was like, Oh my God, orthopedic residency is five years long. <laughs> so you didn't even know when med school. Wow. I figured it out like when I was so they tell you in your first year or two of med school like don't even decide right because could you imagine being in like your second year of medical school sitting on like your biochemistry class that you have to like do well in right and study and go mm-hmm. and be thinking the whole time like I'm gonna spend my career like installing plates and screws on people's bones like, I don't, I don't need biochemistry <laughs> at all, unless you're yeah. gonna explain to me the biochemistry of like how the skin glue works, which we don't, <laughs> of course, learn anything that that useful or applicable in medical. <laughs> um, so it, it was good advice to like, not focus just on what you wanted to do, because otherwise mm-hmm. things would be just really painful. You know, you would just sit there being like, I am never going to use this. Yeah, um, And instead, it's just more fun to think back and think, I'm never going to use any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I was actually, the, I was actually the reverse because I knew I wanted to do orthopedics and sports. And so I was sitting in class going, oh, man, I got to, I got to learn peds. Why? Why do I have to do this? <laughs> so yeah, I could see from, from your side of things. Yeah, it's probably, it made it, it, it a probably little better bit like that. It was enjoyable, you know, but it made it a little less painful. How about that? Yeah, that's, that's cool. Uh, so you knew yeah. in high school you, you wanted to go that route. But I was like flexible about it. I was like, I'm going to do something like that. I thought about doing physical therapy. I even mm-hmm. went to the community college and took some physical therapy assisting classes. Um, I thought at minimum, maybe that's how it'll work when I'm in college. Um, I went and got my EMT license and did some volunteer stuff with like a local fire department. So that was awesome. Um, and I, don't know, I just kept like, you know, go into the next step. And I guess I figured yeah. like I lost my passion or it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, or it got too hard. Like I had plenty of other things that I had like learned about along the way that would be equally as awesome. Hmm. That's very true. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in New York or no? Um, so I grew up on Long Island until I was about 12. And then my family relocated to Florida. So okay. that really worked out in my favor because schools in New York are fantastic. And so when we moved uh, just a few years before high school starts, I was ahead. So mm. I was probably just like an average student in New York, uh, but having a little bit of um, an advantage starting there, I was ahead of the game and uh, was able to get really good grades in high school. And um, 
Florida has a really fantastic program called Bright Futures. So if you are in like the top third of your high school class and you make a threshold level ACT or SAT score, uh, they will give you a 75% or 100% uh, scholarship to any public state university. Wow, that's really good. So um, college was like totally set for me because we were there long enough for me to have residency. My grades were good because I had a really good base foundation education up here. So that was awesome. Where'd you end up going to medical school then? So I had done my undergrad at the University of Florida because it's a public state school and it was far enough away from my parents for it to be acceptable to me. Uh, and strong <laughs> academically to be to them. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I just loved Gainesville and the Gators and, uh, you know, the family kind of I'd made up there. Uh, so I stayed there for medical school. I also had some like earned scholarship money that would roll over if I stayed there. So it pretty much covered my first year of med school. So another reason why I didn't even really contemplate leaving the state for med school because hmm. med school is expensive. And um, to be able to only really have to take out loans for three years instead of four uh, was huge. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, looking back like myself and I know like this is good advice for anyone going through that process is, you know, it's, it's a big financial burden, no matter which way you look at it, orthopedic surgeon, physical therapy, anything medical is going to be, you know, big financially so you have to kind of weigh your options and go with something that's gonna benefit you the most as long as you're going to be able to accomplish your end goals where that degree comes from is often not as important as people think Mm -hmm. absolutely so then how'd you get up to new york is that where you did your residency and fellowship like how did that cycle um, after having spent a little over uh, almost 15 years in florida but eight of them in gainesville um, I thought the next part of my training should probably be in some place uh, large, diverse, and metropolitan. And I think the only part of Florida that I felt like really satisfied that requirement was Miami. Um, hmm. So I applied for residency uh, spots in all kind of metro uh, areas throughout the country. What's interesting about the way our residency works that I don't think a lot of people know is uh, you don't actually pick where you're going to go. So you apply to a whole bunch of places. You submit an application, uh, personal statement, letters of recommendation, and then the places go through all their applicants, and they'll select a subset of them to invite for interview. Uh, And then you go there, and you interview on that day. Hmm. And um, there's a season for interviews. It's usually like two months long, like – right after Christmas, maybe through the end of February. And um, at the end of interview season, we'll say like February 28th is your deadline. And you have to submit to the like American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons Academy, um, a list, uh, it's your rank list. So you say like, uh, the, these are the 10 places I interviewed at. My number one choice is Mayo Clinic. My number two choice mm-hmm. is Cleveland Clinic. My number three choice is the University of Pennsylvania. My number four choice is Yale, whatever. You go your whole list. You don't have to put every place you interviewed. Like if you definitely wouldn't want to go there, you can choose to not list it. And the programs do exactly the same thing with their applicants. They say our number one choice is, you know, 
Jane Smith. Our number two choice is, uh, you know, Robbie Williams. And, and, they, and so that everyone submits it to the central governing body and they generate a mutual list called a rank list that will match everybody to their highest combination, taking into account first the applicant's choice, second, the program's choice. Hmm. So the most competitive people who interview well typically get their one or two and then, you know, up to the number of total spots they have every year for orthopedic surgeons, that many people will match. So some people will end up going to a location that they're not really that enthusiastic about going may have been last on their list. Um, Hmm. But that's, that's how they do it to try to make sure it's fair, fair and that people get as close to what they want as possible. So yeah, that's, that's pretty, that sounds like some hunger game stuff. Yeah. Like literally you open <laughs> an envelope and it tells you in my case where I was going to spend the next six years of my life. Yeah. So I went to the University oh, wow. of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and uh, mm-hmm. I did a six year program there uh, where they have a extra year tacked onto your residency preserved for getting training in doing basic science research. So um, not every place that provides orthopedic surgery to patients and does enough to train people how to do it does basic science. So like labs with mice and rats and cell culture and, uh, you know, instron tension testers and things like that are less common. Uh, And so the programs that have access to those kind of resources sometimes have special programs where people get to spend a little extra time so that they can learn what that is like so that they can decide if that's like the career for them. So I added another year to the marathon training uh, to get that experience. That's awesome. So, so now your specialty orthopedic and then also there's other avenues as well. I know a lot of orthopedic surgeons kind of end up going to a specific joint, right? Yes. And so I think that's the area that the public knows the least about. And it's another thing I kind of learned along the way, but I think maybe I learned this before the last minute. I learned it probably when I was applying to residency. So um, because orthopedics as a specialty covers such a broad spectrum of problems and conditions that it's almost impossible to be an expert at all of that, to think about the um, people that put the casts on the little baby's feet that have club feet and the people that put the rods and screws in people's spine that have scoliosis and the people that Mm -hmm. rebuild someone's pelvis after they're in a car accident and the people who do like a shoulder replacement for arthritis and the people that do like bunion correction uh, and, uh, the people that do ACL reconstruction and rotator cuff repair and the people who resect tumors and will put in like a full femur replacement. You can't do mm-hmm. all of that. It's the technology and the knowledge base is just far too broad. So we break it up into subspecialties. And in the United States, it's kind of body part specific, but sometimes it's actually defined by the technology. Um, so in the United States, the main areas of specialization of orthopedic surgeons is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. They do all things related to uh, 
developing skeletally patients. So from scoliosis to broken bones to knock knees, bow legs, crooked feet, all that stuff. And fractures, because their fractures involve a growth plate. So there's some specialized knowledge for that. Uh, there's orthopedic surgeons that only do hand surgery. Uh, so usually that's like elbow and below. Uh, mm -hmm. there's a specialty for shoulder surgery. Um, a lot of times those are the kind of surgeons that will, um, do replacements of the shoulder. Uh, there's hip and knee replacement specialists, specialists because hip and knee replacements are very, very common. Uh, but it also means that problems with them can be very, very common. So there's a lot of expertise and specialization in trying to figure out how you need to redo someone's knee replacement that they have that may not be working well for them. But the mm. technology of knee and hip replacements is very different than shoulder. So it's very rare that you have someone that does both of those types, shoulder and hip or shoulder and knee. Um, we have foot and ankle specialist surgeons. There are a surprising number of bones and ligaments and tendons in the foot and ankle uh, that have kind of unique functions and it's very different than podiatry. Uh, and we have uh, orthopedic oncologists that deal with tumors in muscles and bone. Uh, and while that's not a very common specialty because orthopedic tumors are not very common, thank goodness, uh, mm -hmm. very unique in how they're able to rebuild uh, people after we take away structures that the rest of orthopedics is always trying to take very good care of and work around. But if it has a tumor, you know, it needs to be addressed. Um, and my area of expertise is orthopedic sports medicine. And um, we're pretty lucky in that uh, we cover kind of the whole body uh, because in sports and being active, you can injure anything from the finger, or the wrist, the hand, the ankle, the knee, the shoulder. Uh, but where we really um, are unique and specialized is that our focus is always on repairing a damaged structure or reconstructing it so that we can put a body part back to a pre-damaged state in order to return someone back to their pre-damaged level of function. Uh, and we are always pushing the envelope with this in terms of doing things minimally invasive. So the poke hole type surgery where we'll put a camera in to see uh, and then do all our work through other tiny little poke holes as opposed to more traditional or conventional surgeries where you'll make a large incision so that you can see everything directly in front of you. Uh, I'm often seeing what I'm actually doing inside of someone's knee or shoulder on a television screen um, hmm. in, in front of me. How, how long did that take you to kind of get used to <laughs> doing the camera and stuff yeah, like that? Because um, that, you're, you're disoriented, yeah. right? Um, so it's, it's very challenging because a television screen is in two dimensions. Um, and hmm. a, a joint or a body part is in three dimensions. Um, and to add further complexity, the uh, cameras we typically use uh, don't point straight ahead. They usually have a little bit of curvature to them because most joints are not what you need to see is not necessarily straight in front of you. So mm -hmm. it's skills we call triangulation so that you know, based on where your hands are in space and what you're looking at on the screen, what movement you need to make to execute the task you want to in the space. And um, it takes a really, it just takes a lot of repetitions 
to do it. And uh, so our, that's part of why our training is so long um, because you have to, you know, learn how to make an incision and sew an incision. And then when that's easy, you need to learn how to use a saw to do something. And then when that's easy mm -hmm. to use it, learn how to use a drill to do something. And then when that's easy, you have to learn how to do drill something without actually touching it with your own hand. Um, so we have a lot of tech now that helps, you know, these little training devices that, you know, may just look like a box, but you can't see through it with your eyes. It makes you have to use the camera to see and you poke your instruments in um, and it kind of helps people learn. Um, one of my mentors once told me that that's why they call it medical practice when you start, because you're still practicing all your skills, even though you know what you need to do and you know how to do it. At first, you're still getting, becoming an expert at it and getting faster and, and getting more efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I bet that's, that's probably a big learning curve there, but those those things are cool. Like arthroscopic is pretty amazing to see in action. And I, you know, and in some of our, it's always like a argument between the specialists, like who does the coolest stuff and the joint mm -hmm. replacement surgeons would say like, um, why, why would you make something harder to do over avoiding a scar? But that's, that's mm -hmm. not what it's really about. You know, we're able to, uh, get patients uh, rehabbing much faster. Sometimes you have a much lower rate of complications when you avoid large incisions. If heaven forbid someone needs another surgery later, it's often a lot easier when there's a lot less scar tissue. And what mm -hmm. we're learning a lot now is by continuing to evolve instruments, sometimes we can reach and access places that we couldn't before because a traditional incision if you need to get underneath, let's say, a really critical structure, like the popliteal artery and vein in the back of the knee, well, you can't just like pull those things out of the way because it like provides the blood to your foot. But if you have the right camera angle and the right tools, you can get underneath them from a totally different angle, from the front of the knee. Um, so we're constantly you know, getting even better at what we can do by the nature of having these tools in the first place. Pushing them. Consistently evolving. That's yeah. awesome. Cool. I think that's a good segue for us to kind of dive into a specific injury. You know, I, I know uh, you being a CrossFitter and uh, myself, I'm always treating CrossFitters. It's going to be a good conversation for us to talk about kind of shoulder injuries in, so especially that population, but kind of, I would say any sports medicine type area as well. Yeah. Um, so what are certain things you see uh, someone walk into your clinic with? Let's you know, of the shoulder, like injuries of the shoulder. So, you know, I, I'm a big lumper when it comes to organizing things in my mind. And um, I always try to identify uh, one of three categories of something that's going wrong with someone's shoulder when I see them. Uh, there are the things that will happen uh, spontaneously with no trauma that are related to um, just chronic um, insufficiencies or inadequacies, like, like 10 years of bad workplace ergonomics and poor posture and inactivity. And those can cause real medical conditions of the shoulder. So those will be the people who've had no injury, you know, no trauma, no overuse. They just have a dysfunction or a pain. 
And so those are the things that just happen chronically uh, from nothing. And then Mm -hmm. there's the overuse conditions. You know, this, the five day a week swimmers that get something slowly over time that usually then worsens, but it is, it's not a trauma. It's, it's from repetitive use and wear and tear. And then there's the traumas, you know, the, I fell and dislocated my shoulder or I did a snatch and, and something happened. And there's that identifiable moment. So, um, I always try to listen to the patient's story and ask enough questions so I can figure out which, which diagnostic bin we're in because I can usually get things into one of those. And sometimes there is a little cross, like someone may have an injury that they shouldn't have had from doing something very benign because they have a history of 10 years of really poor ergonomics and posture. Mm. So when you get someone who comes with those kind of chronic issues, because I feel like traumatic is, you know, you know, traumatic issues, you kind of have to handle right away, but someone with the chronic issues, what is your treatment philosophy really look at there? So the first thing I try to explain is that I believe that whatever is wrong at the present time, that's finally gotten bad enough for them to come seek treatment has happened slowly over time. So that we're, we're going to have to embark on treating this with some degree of patience and expectation that it's not going to go away in a week or even a month. So I think that's the first thing is to make sure that um, they know what your expectations are in terms of getting them well. Um, mm-hmm. Because otherwise, I think everyone is hoping that I have like a magic wand and the next day they're going to feel awesome. And that is much easier with an acute injury or a pain that someone has had for three days as opposed to a pain that someone's had for nine months. So I think the first thing I do is like expectations set and try to make sure they know that I have suspicion that this has been brewing for a long time. And so we're going to have to talk about things other than just like just a pill or uh, just an exercise or a stretch or a shot that's going to have to be much more encompassed. Uh, the way you sit in your car when you drive to commute an hour each way to work. Uh, what what does your work environment look like? If you work from home, are you working on a laptop all day long? Do you have that laptop on a riser and with like a USB keyboard and mouse so that you can actually have decent ergonomics? Or are you like hunched over, you know, with your head down all day long? Um, a lot of times just when I walk in the room to introduce myself to someone, I can get a sense of what may be causing the problem by how they're sitting in the chair on the exam table. You know, we tend mm-hmm. to have uh, a rampant slouched forward, shoulders rolled forward posture. I think it's from the amount of intellectual stuff we do. Everyone's texting or on a, a Kindle or in front of a computer or driving a lot. And that's all kind of shoulders forward kind of slouched over posture. And that's not what those evolutionary cartoons as we evolve from walking on all fours to being upright look like at all. If anything, (laughs) it's almost like a step backwards in our evolution. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So with that though, as uh, those people come in, you know, because I agree, buy-in is so important, right? Like they need to understand it's going to be a process, but there's definitely times where um, one of two things happens, at least for my end. I'm not sure what happens with you. Like one, maybe they'll get 
if it's someone with chronic pain and maybe it'll get like a, an injection or something that dissolves it, it comes back or two, someone, especially with CrossFitters is, you know, we can modify their program to a certain extent, but they're still going to go into the gym and do CrossFit, you know? So how do you, how do you manage those, those kind of two subsets? You know, for the, the hardest and best part of what we do in sports medicine is how many acceptable options there are. So, you know, it depends on the patient's goal. If the patient's goal is to be 100% pain-free, we're going to have to be strict about what our treatment plan is, about what's acceptable to do uh, in the gym and and what's not. Um, But a lot of times people enjoy doing those things so much that there is an acceptable level of pain that they're willing to tolerate. And so then my job is to make sure if that pain represents something that is dangerous to them or not. So let's take, for example, you threw out that sometimes you get a really good cortisone injection. You feel like a million bucks. Uh, So it is very rare that I'll ever suggest a treatment plan to a patient that is only a cortisone injection because I believe that while that's working, while they're feeling better and the inflammation in the shoulder is down as a result of the pharmacology of that injection, that's our... That's our time to improve their underlying mechanical problem, right? So I'm going to tell them, Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you the shot. Chances are in three days, you're going to feel so good. You're going to be tempted to do nothing else I tell you to do. But please don't do that because I don't want to have to give you another shot in eight weeks. I just want you to be better in eight weeks. So while this shot is working, you're either going to do this program I give you or you're going to go see a physical therapist or you're going to go back to your physical therapist that was previously able to get you 20% better, but needed my help to, to get the rest of the way better. And you're going to keep working on it. Um, and then you may never know when the shot wears off. Cause if we can correct the mechanical problem, that was all this time causing the inflammation in the first place. Well, that those are the patients that think the cortisone shot lasted two years. And we just know biochemically, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So what happens when, like, let's say that, that that ends up failing, you know, like when is your guideline to say, okay, we need f- further diagnostics to see if this is something we can fix cons- like with surgery or mm-hmm. have to go in with surgery? So, you know, I think that to me, there are always certain things that will push me for testing or making sure we have a really good, thorough conversation about the pros and cons of considering surgery. Um, and like, for instance, if someone is weak and it's not due to pain, we, sometimes we really need to get that MRI and, and be, be sure we know what's going on inside that shoulder so that we're not neglecting something. Because if we, you know, sit on it for three years and then figure out what's going on, sometimes our options shift a little over time, our expected outcome shifts a little over time. Um, those acute mm-hmm. injuries, if they're not getting better in three weeks, those are usually ones we want to, you know, get an MRI, see what's going on. Um, because most injuries, if you don't j- ignore them, if you treat them and you do the right things and you have a good idea of what it may be, should be starting to show improvement in the three, six, nine week range. Cause your body has biological healing capacity. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes the pain just gets so annoying for a person uh, that 
we need to know what our other options are besides medications or physical therapy things or injection things or uh, if the improvement we're able to achieve is uh, consistently temporary. You know, like if we make them much, much better, but then we keep having relapses, well, then it makes sense to, you know, know definitively what's going on and what our other options beyond the conservative measures are. So, so I think it depends a little bit on uh, how the shoulder looks when I examine it. And if someone's weak, I like to take an MRI because if that person has a rotator cuff tear, I want to know about it. I want to know how big it is. Uh, I want to know if it's partial thickness or full thickness because all those variables come into play when we're making plans and weighing risks and benefits. So there's very low risk to somebody uh, returning to CrossFit and doing anything and everything they want to do with a partial thickness rotator cuff tear. But if somebody Mm -hmm. has a full thickness rotator cuff tear that's not small, we have to have a candid discussion about the fact that that could progress over time and um, how they feel about managing that risk alongside with their desires to, you know, be overhead pressing and things like that. So, you know, it's my job to take what I know about the orthopedic literature and the anatomy of the shoulder and the functions of the shoulder and translate that to how the patient's motivations and desires are. And for some people, Mm -hmm. uh, mitigation of future injury is not a consideration at all. They'll cross that bridge. If they come to it, just make me feel good now, doctor. Uh, And for other people, uh, the, you know, the risk of doing something down the road that could put them out of, let's say their profession, say I tore my rotator cuff, you know, that's going to shut me down from what I do for a living for probably like three months. So I may choose to, you know, never do more than my 60% shoulder to overhead motion again, because I'm still going to be able to participate and do what I like, but decrease Mm -hmm. the chance I have something happen to me that's not within my acceptable risk tolerance. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Like finding out exactly what's, what someone's goals are. Why people like you and I are critical, because if you go to the personal trainer at, you know, the, the gym, they're going to know how to isolate the triceps and, and strengthen Um, But they're not going to know how to correct someone's movement pattern for injury or injury prevention. So I think sometimes people, especially very active people, have unreasonable expectations uh, for the different people in their lives. Yeah. If someone does go that route of, let's say it's a rotator cuff repair or labrum or something of that nature, what what is the traditional like timeline look for you and kind of a rehab and let's let's yeah. bring it specific to a, a crossfitter like let's say a crossfitter okay. came into you and you're going to do a surgery like what does that look yeah. like for them aftercare <clears throat> so um there's really probably two things largely that dictate duration to return to full activities after a surgery uh, and one is related to the surgery and what we expect in terms of healing after that and then the other one is how long they've been shut down before um, because of this injury that's now resulting in surgery. So the one that we know the best about in terms of timelining and, and projecting is the surgery related thing. So if you have your rotator cuff repaired, what we do is we sew the tendon back to the bone so that it can ultimately heal there 
like it was before it was torn. We know that that healing process of the tendon uniting with the bone can take somewhere on the order of 12 weeks to form early scar tendon and then another 12 to 24 weeks to thicken and mature to be strong, sturdy, reliable tendon. So what we do then is we use that knowledge of how what we repaired will heal and create a, a protocol around that. So that's why when I do a rotator cuff repair, um, for about 12 weeks after, I don't love the idea of someone doing an, an active forward elevation or abduction because that's going to be a concentric contraction of that rotator cuff tendon, basically like playing tug mm. of war with my stitches. But we, mm. are, we are dependent on passive or active assistive or some isometric activities during that window to make sure that our joint mobility is not being compromised so that we have a mobile joint when we're ready for the patient to actually move it under their own power and that our muscle innervations uh, our, i.e. our muscle like still knows how to fire and turn on because if for three months you didn't use it at all then we're going to have to like relearn how to move like like the muscle had a stroke so uh, ideally for every procedure we do in sports medicine we take what we know about how things heal uh, and then we figure out what's safe and optimal to do at what time point and plan that out and then when we get to the point where we are thinking, okay, whatever I sewed is healed and is sturdy and is reliable. That's the point where we are already hoping the patient has full range of motion and pretty good isometric control of the surrounding or involved musculature. So that way we can work on restoring their functional strength and then their endurance and their proprioception. And it's really not safe to return to high-level activities until you have restored to normal, hopefully compared to the contralateral side, all of those things, your range of motion, your strength, your endurance, and your proprioceptive ability, uh, So because that's, that's the protective against re-injury uh, mechanism. Mm. So a rotator cuff, if, if you want to go to return to your job as an accountant, um, you're going to feel very normal and back to life in three months. If you want to return to uh, being a double bogey golfer, you're going to feel very good at nine to 11 months after surgery. If you want to return to doing a bar muscle up, uh, that is going to take us 16 months. Mm, wow. Yeah. Well, think about so how much enough. ice you know, stabilization, strength, and proprioception and range of motion you need for the different Absolutely. activities. Yeah, that's so true. You know, and, and that's that's a really good timeline because I think a lot of people um, either under, a lot of people underestimate how long a Well, yeah, because if you come and see me and I tell you 18 months and then you go get a second opinion and that guy tells you nine months, who are you going to have do your surgery? <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Sure. I would rather Very have point. people pleasantly surprised with how fast their recovery goes than disappointed and feeling like I lied to them. Mm -hmm. Very true. Good point. So what are some ways like, you know, obviously this is a, it's tough because no one wants to go down that route of surgery. So what are some ways that you can, 
like, or you recommend people to keep their shoulders healthy now Mm -hmm. to not allow that to happen or to get that bad. Yeah. So I think that is the secret for everything, you know, and, and all, all three categories of the shoulder problems that I see, whether they're due to basically neglect uh, or overuse or acute injury are all preventable by having good shoulder hygiene. You know, uh, the, the complexity of that is it's unique and personalized for the person, right? So I kind of hit on some of the things I talk to my uh, white collar patients who sit at a computer for eight, 10, 12 hours a day plus or minus a commute about all those things. Well, they have to have good shoulder hygiene. They have to have good workplace ergonomics. They have to be conscious about their posture. Um, and then, you know, that extrapolates further of awareness of deficits. So like if you don't have full range of motion because you have a super tight pec minor from 10 years of your main exercise being bench press and not doing any posterior chain work and never stretching. Well, kind of now's the time to have an awareness of that and be adjusting what we do for our programs. Um, But I think some people don't know that they think they're staying healthy and strong by laying on their back and pressing weights up and down Um, Mm -hmm. at a really, um, uh, witty strength and conditioning coach when I was trying out for the national team for rugby. I was very proud because my bench press was the highest on the team and I was definitely <laughs> not the biggest athlete. Um, but I don't think I was best at anything else. So I was pretty braggadocious about that. And the coach, yeah, and that's, that's big. Yeah, yeah, the, coach, bench yeah. um, the coach was like, Belkin, when in your life are you going to need to lay on your back and push something straight up? <laughs> hey he's got a great point that's so true i know i said if you're sitting on the bench to train you're training to sit on the bench <laughs> i like that yeah, i like that that's a good thing they were just getting on me for not running enough <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious so sometimes you don't think you know it's like the beach muscle phenomena right mm-hmm. um so i think you know I, sometimes I use the word shoulder hygiene because to me, it's like the spiel the dentist gives you. You know, you got to brush for 30 seconds per quadrant, uh, you know, two times a day and you got to do the floss and you got to do the rinse. Well, it's the same for the shoulder. You have to like make sure that your posture is reasonable most of the time. Uh, you need to make sure you maintain some semblance of strength, especially in the small muscles. You don't just the deltoid and the pec and even like if you are smart enough to know that the back is really important and get the lats and the delts, you know, uh, it's still not taking care of your rotator cuff, which is critical mm-hmm. for maintaining shoulder health. But no one wants to be that guy in the gym with the two pound dumbbells. You know, it's not. Yeah. Um, but that's like important to having a healthy shoulder. And if you can't scratch between your two shoulder blades, you know, that's like, you know, a warning that maybe you're letting flexibility um, be neglected when flexibility is critical um, in terms of maintaining joint mobility and health. And um, uh, the joint was designed to have a tremendous range of motion. That's why the shoulder is so wonderful and so challenging all at the same time. You know, it's this Mm -hmm. ball and socket 
But if it was truly a ball and socket, it would move more like the hip and less like the shoulder. And that wouldn't be very useful. So we really yeah. have like a golf ball on a golf tee, which is why we have such wonderful range of motion of the shoulder, but why it's such a vulnerable joint. Because if something knocks that ball off the tee in any one direction, well, then the joint's not working at all. So everything circumferentially around it needs to be operating at, you know, normal functionality for it to be really happy. Yeah. Um, so absolutely. I, you know, I think that, you know, it's all, it's population based. So I, I think my problem with my youth athletes is they're just athletic kids and they think all they need to do to be good athletes is play their sport. And that couldn't be further from the truth. All that does is put them at risk of injury. So if you're a swimmer, you need to be working on your rotator cuff endurance uh, and your core strength every day that you're in the pool and every day that you're not in the pool. If you're a 12-year-old baseball player, you need to be making sure you don't get internal rotation deficits in your flexibility, and you need to have a strong kinetic chain to be throwing from. If you're a volleyball mm -hmm. player, you also need to make sure you maintain your internal rotation. That's your whole deceleration after you're hit, you know, and in my older, you know, weekend warrior people, you can't just, you know, go to the gym and do like a four hour intense workout every Saturday and do nothing else to maintain the health of your shoulder joint the, the rest of the week. Yeah, that's, that's so true. That's, that's some great advice there. All right. So with that note, you know, I uh, thank you for kind of taking time out of your day and I'm going to close this up. If you have some any last kind of words of advice and really how can people learn more about you and reach out to you if they have a shoulder injury or any sort of sports injury? Uh, absolutely. Um, so for the internet uh, savvy folks, uh, Columbia University Orthopedics has a great uh, website uh, that tells a little bit about myself and all my partners. Should you have uh, an issue affecting a body part uh, where maybe I'm not the, the expert for you, um, our local office numbers are 914-233-3022. Uh, we have uh, offices in Cold Spring, Cortland Manor, and Croton on Hudson. Uh, and uh, I think that my advice for people, they always know to give me a call when they have an injury. Um, but what I think people hesitate is when they're having something that just doesn't quite feel right. Um, and it's, you know, been there for longer than a week or two, you know, to me, uh, and maybe it's because of my bias for sports medicine, that's worth us talking about. You know, it's certainly going to be nothing that we're going to need to do anything drastic about. But one, it's usually easier to get rid of things when you have a sense of what they are. Um, and it's also usually easier to get rid of things when they've been going on for a couple weeks or a month or two, as opposed to a year or two. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, the biggest thing is if, you know, you're feeling something, it doesn't feel right, you're not able to do your normal stuff, you know, don't wait forever to get it checked out just because you're scheduling an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon doesn't mean that the diagnosis and treatment plan is going to be something that needs surgery and some kind of surgery. Um, it's hopefully going to be educational for you to find out what's going on in your body and there will be a full discussion of what might be going on, uh, what are some things we might do in terms of treatment, or should that not be yielding the results we're looking for, what we might do in terms of additional diagnostic testing to make sure we truly understand what's going on. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. My for pleasure. Thanks, Joe. And we'll talk okay. soon. Have a great um, one.